0: The best part? You can try Audible free for 30 days and get your first audiobook on them. It's a great way to experience storytelling while supporting this podcast. To get started, go to thenextreel.com slash audible or text the nextreel to 500500 500. Listen to incredible audiobooks and support the show today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. I'm Pete Wright and I'm Andy Nelson. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog, and you can become part of our Discord community. Learn more about the show and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com.
1: So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and
0: we hope you enjoy the show. It's weird, but different different podcatchers, their speeds seem to work differently.
1: It's true, yeah.
0: Like, I was always a double speed or two and a half on other ones. And now that I'm on overcast, I find that if I, well, let me see if I can find, like, I think we're at, like, one and three quarters or something.
1: One I'm and like, three geez. quarters? Yeah. That's like slow motion.
0: I tell you, I know.
1: No, I'm at but one is, and two, 1. One? 1.25. I'm at two point whatever well, it is. it's not one and three.
0: It. It one, two, three, yeah. four, five. Well, they have point... So it's point two, four, six, eight. No, it's not even point two. It's, there's five stops between one and two, and it's the yeah. last one right before two.
1: See, I'm the one right over two. Wow. It's not that yeah. surprising. It's yeah. not that much different than yours. I'm telling you, you're being a little bit hashtag judgmental place.
0: No, I'm not. I'm not being judgmental. Oh, I think yeah. it's no, great for you. A I, I am saying I could never do what you can do because I don't have those superpowers. What you're No, what
1: you're really saying is now I see why you missed the belch in that episode, because your work is slipshod, because you're moving too fast. That's what I heard. No. And what I'm telling you is, I missed the belch for many other reasons. I never heard it that fast. I never heard it at all. In fact, I think it's fair to say I didn't listen to the Amazon section of that episode. I was just (laughs) confident that, oh, Amazon starts here, cut,
0: done. It was great. I remember nothing but fun in that section. I will <laughs> keep it. <laughs> is that how yeah, it works? That's <laughs> how
1: it, that's how we're
0: we're doing a lot of shows, man. I know. Cut me and a this, little. This is slack. just one of uh, how many that you're doing a week. So I uh, I can't even I can't even imagine. Look at you. You just did. You put it back on me just then. You put no, it back I, on I, me. I'm saying how how strong and courageous you are to be doing so much. <laughs> I Who cannot does? take
1: you seriously right now at all. You are insulting me left and right, and I can't even define how.
0: There are no insults. No, no it's too late. It's out there. It's it's so deep an insult <laughs> that it's it's like a hundred percent compliment. That's how far I went.
1: <laughs> We've come around. We've come around the compliment. That's right.
0: Around the horn. Around <laughs>
1: the. What are you doing? Did you have you seen anything since we talked last?
0: Uh well we rewatched Star Wars and uh had a great time doing. Yeah, did it hold up? We did that too this weekend. We we actually uh, rewatched that too. What'd you think? It really held up. It's just you know, it's just so stinking fun to watch. Uh you know, any problems I have with it or had with it when we discussed it on the film board are so easily glossed over as I just sit and watch it because it's Star Wars and I just can you know, turn everything off and just sit with a smile on my face and just watch it and revel in the sheer joy of it.
1: No, we had a delightful time and it was really fun watching the starting to watch. Uh, we and we haven't by any stretch completed the uh, extra features, but uh, starting to watch some of those extra features were really fun, particularly the BB 8 stuff. Um, it was so easy to kind of wrap, to just kind of sort of say, Oh, you know, BB 8 was a practical effect, like that, they made that droid, and they, they actually. I mean they did but sort of there was a lot of work and CG and different incredibly talented puppeteers to make BB8 look and and work as such a character and so I thought that was really cool.
0: I ha- I we only watched uh just a part of the just kind of the the overall like the one hour making of. I just mm-hmm. watched part of that and I only got through kind of some of the initial development, so I haven't mm-hmm. gotten very far. There's a lot of stuff. To there is to a look lot there. Yeah. A lot of stuff.
1: Maybe you haven't. So you haven't watched the script read through. No, I haven't watched that. Bring your tissues.
0: Oh, really? Do I they know, do the? They that.
1: don't do the whole thing, do they? No, they don't. But you know that iconic photo, the black and white photo. They released? oh yeah, yeah right. So well, they
0: they showed some of that in the in the. uh the prep part of the that's documentary true.
1: That that's true. They do, and and uh, this is just a like a five minute bit. For I think it, it may be in in completely encapsulated in the prep. But it was they were showing the uh, Mark Hamill uh, read did the the read through. Everybody else did their characters, but obviously Mark Hamill didn't have much to do, right. so uh, he read uh, you know everything else, all the direction and everything else in the in the screenplay. And he really does have a fantastic voice. And um, it was really cool to to see them do that stuff and to watch all the characters actually or all these actors interact with one another. Um, Yeah, I I admit it. I was moved. I'm a sucker. (laughs) I thought it was really cool.
0: Yeah, it's good stuff. That's going to be a plethora of material to kind of just uh, watch and enjoy.
1: Shall we tell the people where we're from?
0: Where are we from?
1: The next reel on Rashpixel.fm, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that dare is Andy Nelson.
0: Hey, hey, hey! And
1: we spoil movies tonight on the show. We're kicking off our Shane Black series with his very first blockbuster screenplay, Lethal Weapon. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show on YouTube or anywhere the finest podcasts are served. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at thenextreel. And if you've ever felt like you're too old for this. Sh- then you're the perfect candidate for the Next Reel's Instagram, hashtag PonyPrize hashtag Guess the Movie Challenge.
0: And with that, let's head on over to Scotland, where Stephen Smart is smack dab in the middle of his own Three Stooges marathon to see if he can take a break and tell us who won this week.
1: Hey guys, this week we slipped back into the shadows with late 40s noir Cry of the City from 1948, directed by Robert Siodmak and starring Victor Mature and Richard Conte. Just as I was about to post image 3, at Alexander Curran snuck in for his first win of the year. So congrats Alexander, you're entered into the 2016 Pony Prize Act. As always, a new challenge starts on Monday. So thanks guys, and see you later. Yeah, you know, I, I have to admit, I expected this blot spot. Ben Lott, friend of the show, has written in with his opinion, not only on Hound of the Baskervilles, the final film in our 1939 series, but his reflections on 1939. How'd we do?
0: Yeah, this was one that I think he kind of uh, pretty much agreed with us. I have next to nothing to add to your comments on The Hound of the Baskervilles. You guys totally nailed my own opinion of the film. I will mention that it was very interesting that this was the first in a series of Sherlock films, but they felt no need to introduce Holmes and Watson. Nowadays, you have to start with an origin, even if it's Batman versus Superman, and you've, you're you just introducing a new actor in a role that has already been established on screen for decades. I think that's a great point by Ben that we didn't bring up at all. Quick reflection on 1939. First of all, only one movie of the 10 we've watched has hit my top 100. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is at number 10 for me. In fact, most of the 1939 films are in the bottom 25% of my flick chart. I'm a bit surprised that after 10 films, there are still four of the Best Picture nominees from that year that we haven't watched. However, based on how things are going for me, I think I'd be content with stopping here. Your rank for Howard of the Baskervilles, 220, my rank 181.
1: You know, I was actually thinking about this very comment as I was watching the new Suicide uh, Squad trailer. Have you seen it? The Blitz trailer? Ah, uh, yes. Mm-hmm. It's a good trailer. I was excited about it, but I had this funny thought that, you know, Batman shows up, up in it for just a few minutes, I think, in the film, and I, how funny would it be if, like, 30% of the movie was an origin story for Batman again? <laughs> <laughs> Even though it's the same actor. <laughs> I think that would yeah. be in stitches. That'd be funny.
0: Yeah, you gotta wonder. I mean, I did question... <laughs> It's like when I saw that in uh, Batman versus Superman. It's yeah. like
1: really again, again. But you it's know, like, and to the point, it's like we've it, it's like we regressed uh, because uh, you know probably part of the reason that we didn't introduce Holmes and Watson is because in fact Holmes and Watson were already you know uh, film characters in 1939, just not with these actors. But I, and I but guess I think, that's kind of the point. Yeah. Right. Uh, and we don't do that anymore, because I think every actor probably wants to have uh, their take on the, um, on the character.
0: Well, and, you know, as I've said last week, as a non-scholar of Sherlock Holmes, were there any books, like, was the very first book that he wrote, was that kind of an origin story of, of Holmes and Watson? Or did it always begin kind of, uh, what, is the, what is the Latin term, in media res?
1: Yeah, I don't remember. The it was I believe studying Scarlet and I actually don't remember how much of an origin story it was. My uh, my sense is that it was not as a result of the fact that I can't remember. I don't remember yeah. an origin story of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah,
0: I I just I don't know. Yeah. Sherlock fans out there, please tell us. Yeah. And as I uh, said
1: last week, Andy, I think it's time. <laughs> Let's do trailers. <laughs>
0: So, Pete, my trailer this week is fantastic. I really am excited for it's, uh It's Jason Bateman's, uh, I think it's his second film that he's directed now, The Family Fang. I had heard nothing of this. Apparently, it opened last year at Toronto. I totally didn't hear anything about it from there, but it just looks so great. This is a film, um, it's about Jason Bateman and his sister, played by Nicole Kidman.
1: They actually look really good. They
0: look great together. They look like a great brother-sister pair. I'm yeah. really excited about that pairing. And they grew up in this family with parents who were really into performance art, and their parents really kind of forced them. I mean, as kids, it didn't look like they were forced, but as they got older, it seemed like they probably were forced uh, to be a part of this uh, these crazy antics like the you know posing for the christmas photo and then they all open their mouths at the last minute and they're all wearing fangs and blood is pouring from their mouths (laughs) looks great so um their parents christopher walken and uh who is the mother uh mary mary ann plunkett playing mary
1: ann plunkett
0: and they um Want to now that their kids are grown, they want to have another uh, another little uh, bit of performance art, but uh, but uh, Nicole and Jason don't want anything to do with it, and so the parents kind of leave in a huff, and all of a sudden turn up missing, and there's a, a crime scene, <laughs> and of course the kids are like, no, no, they're not dead, it's all performance art, and it turns into this quest to kind of find their parents and uh, prove that it's all just performance art while at the same time I have a sense of kind of finding themselves and their place in this crazy world. I love the sense of this story. I love the quirkiness of it. I love this kind of performance art angle to it. Everything about it just is right up my alley. It's based on a novel by Kevin Wilson, and the screenplay is by David Lindsay, a bear. And... I don't know, man. I I think this looks really good. I hope it's good. Uh, I don't... You know, David Lindsay Abare's screenwriting. uh, I know he's a Pulitzer Prize winner, I believe, but uh, he wrote the Poltergeist uh, remake and Oz the Green Powerful. So (laughs) some things that give me pause. (laughs) But he also did Rise of the Guardians, which I actually really liked, and Inkheart, which you really liked, I I really did. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, you know, maybe there's hope. Maybe there is hope. Well, I...
1: yeah, I saw that, you know, one of the uh, logs, uh, uh, one of the, the CG sort of quotes on this thing is the, the best story about an eclectic family since the Royal Tenenbaums. This looks so much better than the Royal Tenenbaums. Uh, I, which which I thought was just interminable. Um, I I did. I had a hard time with that. This is this is I think probably the family story that that I need to cleanse my palate of that. This looks quirky and fun. And Jason Bateman, how can you not enjoy Jason Bateman? Did you see his first film? This was Bad Words, his first uh, you know, directed I, film.
0: It's been on my list. I keep meaning to, and I just totally missed it. And uh, but I, I after watching this trailer, I brought it uh, right up to the top of my Netflix queue because well, I I really. Want to see that one
1: let me tell you my worry and i i wonder if you will share my opinion i adore jason bateman i really he is high on the list of best friends who haven't met me yet right yeah i hear you me too and bad words was funny i thought it was funny i worry that with any other actor in that role i would have found it not funny you see what I'm saying? Yeah. I worry about this as well. I think it it, it has that what it what this one has that bad words did not have is uh, um, Nicole Kidman and Christopher Walken. I mean, I'm I I think that those are two more actors that I I'm deeply interested in their interpretation of this kind of family story. So I
0: I am very excited about it. I think it looks really really great. It just it's super quirky and I can't wait to see it. This one opens uh I think it's limited April twenty ninth and uh everywhere else I believe it's early May. So we'll have to check that one out uh soon. Excellent. Excellent. Nope. Excellent. Now Pete, tell tell people what your trailer is this week. Ugh,
1: Andy, timing sucks so bad for us. <laughs> this trailer <laughs> dropped right after we'd already recorded last week's show. That's right. Rogue one. A Star Wars Story, which now has settled on me as being just a terrible title. A Star Wars Story? That really sounds terrible. But everything else looks so awesome in this trailer. <laughs> it looks so awesome. Oh, yes. Uh. Gareth Edwards directing, I, uh, you know, we, we like the Gareth Edwards mixed on Godzilla. I think some of us were mixed on Godzilla, but generally we are, we are pleased with Gareth Edwards' work. And, I'm um, so very excited to see what he brings to this story. It, it is such an awesome kind of throwback, right? You know, they have just the right mix of the old storm troopers and the old rebel soldiers with the, the, like, velodrome bike helmets, uh mixed with the new stormtroopers and they're in black and then they bring up the the uh the adats in just perfectly on the beach <laughs> on the beach that was just great and it, you know i think what the one of the things that i i found myself really reflecting on is just how well this trailer uh reflects how great cg is at making these giant mechanical formerly practical uh effects Look practical again, like these AT-ATs, I thought were terrific, and they looked exactly like they looked, you know, as they were careening toward the rebel uh, hidden rebel base on Hoth, except for there were just more of them, and they're doing more stuff, and yet they still look very much like the practical effects that I'm used to. And so, uh, even though I know that they are they're very much sort of CG accentuated devices, so I'm really excited about it. I'm furious at the um you know the sort of backlash uh, against Felicity Jones and her casting as uh you know what what is it now i don't even know what the hashtag is, it, is but is it? it's the, the another uh b- white brunette girl hero uh how quickly we forget where we have come from
0: uh, that just makes me so irritated it, it's
1: so irritating she looks terrific she she looks really uh like just another uh, fantastically strong and hopefully well written uh, character i am more curious about her in fact than i finding that i was about ray like this is uh, this i find so interesting and i think there is there is a lot of promise in a standalone story they they don't really have to make good on anything that comes next because really they could kill everybody in rogue one everybody could die and it wouldn't matter because supposedly it's a standalone story right i don't think they will but i think there's just a lot of promise and they can take more risks in these in these sort of stories that are not part of the saga. So uh, I'm super curious about it. I can't wait to see it. Alan Tudyk is in it. How can you go wrong?
0: I can't wait. Everything about it just looks... So fun. The look, the vibe, the fact that it doesn't have to be about Jedis, you know? The, yeah. There's no sign of any lightsabers in the trailer. Just right. Just really great characters. And Mon Mothma, who looks just like <laughs> Mon Mothma. I, I don't know if they cast the same actress, but I love the fact that it looks like they did.
1: And, and uh, capes. My goodness, yeah. this trailer
0: is a celebration of capes. And a samurai. How do
1: they stay? They parade through the beaches. Long capes. <laughs> we should wear capes. I'm uh, wearing mine right now. <laughs> I'm very surprised excited. The, re- <laughs> the release date of this thing—it uh, starts rolling out in France, December fourteenth, two thousand sixteen, and parades around the world uh, until it reaches the U.S. December sixteenth. Sorry, Poland, December twenty-third. What's up with that? Everybody else is—they're
0: uh, going to have to go to 14th, a neighboring country.
1: 16. Yeah. Yeah, so there you go. Uh, looks like uh, looks like it'll be good fun. Mid December, cannot road wait. Road one yes.
0: How's your inner child? It's my inner child is super excited. Really, like uh, it. It won't go in the box anymore.
1: Really? Oh, Andy, I'm so happy for both of you.
0: <laughs> Thank
1: you. <sighs> I don't That's make good. things complicated. That's just the way they get all by themselves.
0: He's the criminal's worst nightmare, a cop who enjoys the danger. No guns, no jiu-jitsu, just bring him down. Do you really want to jump? Well, then that's fine with me. Come on. Wait, what do you mean? Wait a minute. What What Ah! He was ready to retire. Now, he's going to wish he had. Gun! Raj,
1: meet you, new partner. New
0: partner. (laughs) Too old for But these guys can just stand each other. What you got in there? Boy and Smith? A lot of old timers carry those. The bad guys don't stand a chance. Don't kill anybody. Don't kill anybody. I'm too old for this. Are you as good as you say you are? Nobody can touch me. Suppose we better register you as a lethal weapon. You ever met anybody you didn't kill?
1: Well, I haven't killed you yet. Lethal weapon, Andy. Why has it Mm -hmm. taken us almost five years to talk about this film? Should that have been rhetorical? Uh, Should I have used my (laughs) rhetorical voice? (laughs) Seriously, let's think about this. I mean, when you talk about movies that have impacted um, your youth, this goes back to, I was just listening to our, (laughs) I was listening to us four years ago, five years ago, talk about Raiders. And the first question I asked was, what is your first memory of seeing that movie? Now, I recognize that there are very few movies that might be up there for you in the Raiders' category but for me lethal weapon was one of those films it was like the first grown-up action testosterone movie uh like the first serious buddy cop action movie that i saw where there was overt crazy violence and uh nudity and so and i saw it with my dad and i remember walking out just juiced
0: i bet you didn't share that I actually did not see this in the theaters. What? Um, and actually, I did not actually even see this until after Lethal Weapon 2 came out. And Lethal Weapon 2 was my actual entry into this series. Oh, God. <laughs> Isn't that weird? I I don't know how I missed this. I, I just think it was just one of those movies that was not... Uh, I, my dad probably wouldn't have taken me to it. <laughs> I mean he liked taking me to action did you, films, did but you it was him? Did you it ask wasn't him? at this age. well I don't think I was looking for this sort of movie at yep, that
1: age. Yep, your odds fifty percent by asking, Andy. Thank you for that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow, spoken like you've been hanging out with my dad. <laughs> that was weird.
1: <laughs> I don't you know, I think it's also fair to say I've been waiting five
0: years to do that. <laughs> That's, it. that's uh, the thing, best funny. thing I ever learned from your dad right there. I use that all the time with my own kids. That's a good line. Yeah. It is a good line, yeah. No, I mean, he would take me to action movies, but I don't think it was uh, violent R-rated action movies at that age. Mm. Like, uh, you know, he was more inclined to take me to something like The Hunt for Red October, which came out a few years later. Mm-hmm. That's something that he probably would have taken me to. Because you would have been, I, what, I, 15
1: when this came out? That was, I think that's right, 15? Uh, 14. 14, okay, all right, 14,
0: see. Technically uh, 13, because it came out in March.
1: Well, that's why it was transformative for me, because my dad made yeah. a bad parenting decision. <laughs> <laughs> I'm seeing that now, and now that I've made a few of those parenting decisions on my own, I, I'm i okay with it.
0: <laughs> no, you're all good.
1: <laughs> Who would have done this? The The- the premise here: uh, veteran cop Murtaugh partnered with a young suicidal cop Riggs, both having one thing in common—hating working in pairs. They make it sound so kind, it, even though I they've know, already it thrown
0: out suicidal. That really turns it into kind of the the buddy cop comedy side of the yeah. story. I right, think. right.
1: Okay. Well, so this is definitely not your Raiders. It is an, a, a tragedy of fate that you saw this after two. But I will still open with the question, Andy, how did it hit you?
0: You know, I i mean, I enjoyed it more in my youth. I think now, uh, upon rewatch, I just found it more dated. I definitely appreciate some of the action tropes and some of the stuff that Shane Black brings to the table here. I feel like this is the... Um, I, I'm torn between this and, and two as uh, my favorite of the series. It still might be two, mainly because that's probably the one that really... Uh, introduced me to this uh, series and then three and four I just really have issues with I just didn't like either of those very much and I feel like um, there was a lot of the the Shane Blackness in the script that I like quite a bit upon uh, uh, rereading it but I feel like um, Richard Donner brought stuff to the screenplay here that um and, and and a lot of it is in the script, but I think I feel like he enhanced it. A lot of the the stuff like the family connections and all of that that I ended ended up struggling with more. And also just I I it's weird because Mad Max played uh, or Mel Gibson played Mad Max, and he there's I think a more um it's it's odd that he's named Mad Max in those films. But he isn't as mad as he is in this film, and I find his his craziness here to be a little too cartoonish. Really? Yeah. I mean, obviously, there's Well, and may, maybe it's because he kind of brings Three Stooges and kind of that wackiness into it. And there are times where I have a hard time buying into him, like when he's, you know, when he's kind of pulling those sorts of goofy things, and when he's like. Uh, you know, like, let's do it. Let's jump. Let's do it. And, and things like that, I have a harder time buying into as him being suicidal and more just him being kind of that wacky, funny, crazy Mel Gibson. I actually, I mean, maybe I I hadn't made
1: the connection, the, Mel, the Mad Max connection. And I think you're right. In In this film, I, I actually see him as more of, of that Mad Mad Mel uh, than Mad Max, certainly. Um, and And maybe it's because there's more of the madness, like the psychosis and not just the rage. Um and but but I actually really found I liked the origin story of Riggs. I really f- was connected to it. Uh, you, you know, mean, particu- when you say
0: origin story, you mean the death of his wife?
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, the sequences of him uh, alone in the trailer, I thought were were really touching in that kind of over the top, like uh, tough man being sensitive way. Uh, I actually really liked it. I liked him exploring the the bullet. I liked him exploring the the gun. I thought it was it was particularly. Tense, watching him with that big gun in his hand, or, you know, pointing it at his head, putting it at his mouth. That was just, really, I, I found sort of viscerally horrifying. And and to have, you know, only those lines uh, of him talking to the picture of his his wife, um, you know, and then admitting how insane it is that that he's even having these thoughts. I know it's crazy. I know it's crazy. I thought that was really powerful stuff. You thought it was too over the top.
0: No, no, no! That stuff I like. Those are the elements that f- I feel give it a sense of him being really kind of suicidal. And and mm. and and there. Then there's that dangerous su- suicidal element that I think there are flashes of, like when he catches the guy in the first chase at the Christmas tree place. And, yes. you know, he, he I mean, he does that's where he, you know, he pulls the Three Stooges bit. But then when he grabs the guy and he, he's like, you know, go ahead and pull it. And he yeah. like grabs the gun and all that sort of stuff. I see flashes of that craziness there. And I, I kind of like it there. And I mean, I thought he was great and intense there. Um, but then there are times where like, I don't feel it worked as well when he's on the building and uh okay. and he's trying to talk that guy down. I just feel like it 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 became a little too comical where it's just like you want to jump, let's jump, let's do it. You know, it's like I I especially because maybe maybe it's cuz I have a lot of problems with that setup for that scene anyway. Um but I, and that's kind of the the issue I had is there were times where that that suicidal tendency that he had just kind of veered into the kind of the crazy uh wacky territory and I didn't buy into it as much.
1: Okay. I I didn't have any trouble with the Christmas set. I I found the crazy wacky stuff was really fun and funny and uh, loved the way he used that kind of wackiness to throw the three drug dealing idiot, um, you know, christmas tree salespeople um you know off their game i thought that was actually really really nice and i i totally agree with you that the psychosis of him actually you know in that gun exchange uh was really powerful uh you know when you get to see that glimpse of the series i totally agree with you that the jumping sequence is ridiculous uh for one major reason how did neither of them make note of the fact that the giant inflatable balloon was being blown up by the giant crew of fire people uh, about
0: eight stories below them?
1: I have a really hard time with that.
0: That has been my problem with that uh, scene ever since I saw this film. Like, I'm always like, how did they not see that? It's a huge airbag right below them, and they completely miss it?
1: Yes. Uh, Not only that, the camera in that sequence has to work really exceptionally hard not to see the giant airbag down below them. Yes. If the camera has to work that hard, obviously hard, such that the audience doesn't catch that they're trying to avoid that giant airbag, then that's just the wrong play. That just doesn't work. I, I You know. Yeah. Uh, and, and that, I think, detracts from the entire sequence, the, the whole thing. And I feel like I know what they were trying to get at. I know that they were trying to, you know, further cement this uh you know, Riggs get the audience really questioning whether or not Riggs is is uh truly um you know psychologically compromised or if he's just trying to pull for benefits. Right. It just didn't work. It just takes you out of the movie in my opinion.
0: And that's another element that d- never worked for me in the screenplay was uh, the constant, you know, conversations that people are having about his imbalance. And it because of the way that it was treated in the script it always felt kind of silly like the the bickering between the captain and the uh the precinct psychologist and how dismissive he was of her and it just it felt like you know i don't see it it's it's just he's fine and it just it became this thing where it's like you know, I don't know. I, they they never painted it like it was that serious, and so I I had a hard time buying into the uh, that nature of it. I I don't know. I felt it. I, I I'm really torn with my feelings about it because I feel like it wasn't painted as well as I remembered it, and I I wish I could really pinpoint it better. But I just you know the, I just felt like there were elements in the script that just didn't. Keep it there for me.
1: I think in recent, maybe not so recent shows, but certainly shows that are coming up that have yet to air, uh, we have talked about, uh, come back around to this concept of how expeditious of a screenwriter uh, these folks are, you know, how much they rely on dialogue to tell a story. And I think this is one of those films where, um, you know, you, you learn a lot in the trailer sequences about Riggs without any words at all. Right, you you learn a lot about his and him and his backstory, and uh, through just a, a snippet of a television uh, reporting, you you just really learn a, everything you need to know about this guy's background. And then we get into some of these sequences where there's just way too much dialogue. It's like it's a, a complete roller coaster, but you can see hints where uh black screenwriting is really expeditious and it it sort of fades in and out, right? That that sort of early skill. And and I'm really curious to see how well he um he evolves in in that area and and sort of uh sharpens his his screenplays. Yeah. I don't have any real memory of, of many of the films, certainly from a perspective of building the screenplay um, that we're doing in this series.
0: No, I, I don't either. I, I need to go back. This I had read this screenplay and I think Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I haven't read, I've seen bits and pieces of the other scripts. So I'm curious, I'm going to try to read all the screenplays as we go along, see if I can get through them all, if I can find the time, just to really get a handle on how the screenplay worked versus how that film ended up playing out. So. It'll be interesting to see if I can pull that off.
1: So what is your sense with how he writes the screenplay for Lethal Weapon, um, having gotten through it? I haven't gotten through the whole thing, but, um, but uh, what's your sense of how well he, he actually you know, writes these things?
0: You know, he is uh, really kind of a famous screenwriter. The reason that we did this series on him is because he became this legendary screenwriter. In fact, here's a quote from Colin Chang from Logline, said this, Legendary screenwriter Shane Black was famous for talking directly to the reader and greasing the rails, as it were. He made reading a script fast and fun. Most importantly, he made you feel as if you were part of the story as it unfolded, and we ate it up like candy. And I think that, uh, I mean, that's kind of what he did with his screenplay and, and you read the script and it's just, I mean, it really is a breeze to read. I mean, it just, it makes it really fun to just kind of go along with the story. And, You know, he throws things in, like reading the beginning of the, the open of the script. City of Angels lies spread out beneath us in all its splendor, like a bargain basement promised land. Camera soars, dips, winds its way slowly down, down, bringing us in over the city as we super the main titles. Titles end as we spiral down toward a lush, high-rise apartment complex, the moon reflected in glass. Camera continues to move in through billowing curtains into the inner sanctum of a penthouse apartment, and here, boys and girls, is where we lose our breath. And it's just moments like that in here, boys and girls, where yeah. it's just kind of like he's got that kind of cutesy way that makes it really kind of fun because you're like, oh, that was kind of a clever little way to kind of tie me in all of a sudden, you know? And then He's like
1: a carnival barker, right? I mean it's he's a showman in his writing. Like it feels it feels like Moulin Rouge, like there's somebody there who's calling me in to open the curtains and be a part of it.
0: Yeah, like later when you, uh, when Riggs and Murtaugh go to the Beverly Hills home uh, for uh, tracing uh, some clues, he writes exterior posh Beverly Hills home, Twilight, the kind of house that I'll buy if this movie is a huge hit. Chrome, <laughs> glass, carved wood, plus an outdoor solarium, a glass structure like a greenhouse, only there's a big swimming pool inside. This is a really great place to have sex.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's great.
0: Yeah. So I mean, he really he really has a lot of fun with the scripts. Yeah. And the whole thing from beginning to end really kind of feels that way. This is somebody who's having fun, and he's inviting you along with him. And yes, there's a lot of violence. Yes, there is some uh, misogynism. Yes, there is uh, some uh, just, you know, some undertones that definitely now can kind of make you feel uncomfortable. But at the time, it was just, it was so much fun and And uh, it just it really brought you along for the ride, and I think that's what uh, made him a success. I mean, he wrote this like right out of uh, UCLA, and ended up getting it sold for two hundred fifty thousand dollars, which was huge at the time. You know, I mean, he made a lot of money, and it was uh, it was you know, he was this twenty three year old kid, and all of a sudden he was kind of setting the standard for action screenplays. So. I think that um, I think that worked well for him as he went on, but I, I think we'll kind of talk about how it ended up kind of hindering his career a little bit too. Um, I, I think it's interesting that this was so popular that he was actually hired and paid one hundred twenty five thousand to come back just to come up with the idea for the sequel for yeah, Weapon right. Two. So, um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, he's a fun writer, and that's that's what. I really like about reading his scripts. That's why I would always tell my students to read his scripts, because, because he makes screenwriting fun. And and he does things that, if they can pull off, can work really well and help sell a script. It's not necessarily stuff that ends up in the film, but it's stuff that makes it great for readers to read. And But, you know, all of that aside... I also think that he knows how to tell an interesting story. Yes, I have problems with this screenplay. There's, you know, I, I, I shake my head at a lot of the way that the police work actually is handled. There is there's no police script. work in this it's movie. Like, are these guys just handling all the evidence at the crime scene before anyone gets here to look at it? Like, yeah. there's so many questions I had about what they were actually doing. But that's interesting, um, not,
1: right? Because this wasn't this was not a procedural, and it didn't... Set itself up to be a procedural, right? We didn't really get into procedurals until CSI, right? I mean, this was that was a change in how the police drama, uh, you know, it was expected to be culturally. This was about these two guys, and that's all we cared about,
0: right? It was very much buddy cop comedy, uh, sort of sort of thing, and it, in in a way, it really kind of set the standard for expectations in that uh, in that genre. And I think that he tapped into that, and uh, I mean, there had been others before, but I don't think that any of them uh, really set the standard like this one did. And you can really look at the the benchmark this set and uh, and see kind of what uh, uh, where that action mark ended up going because of what he did here. Yep, I
1: absolutely agree. Should we uh, should we bust into the uh, some more specifics about the cast? Are you ready to do that?
0: Yeah, I think, um, I think that the, the, well, before we talk to cast, let's, uh, let's just talk to about Richard Donner real quick. Director who, Richard who Donner. helmed this, yeah. Yeah. Um, because he came on, I think he's the reason that we ended up with the cast that we got. I think he's the one who ended up, um, inviting Mel Gibson and Danny Glover to be a part of this, um, I think, well, first, I think it's really funny that before him, they actually were offering this to Leonard Nimoy to direct. <laughs> like, that's an interesting choice. Um, but he said he actually wasn't comfortable doing action. Good for you, Leonard. This probably wasn't for yeah, you. Yeah, that was smart. And uh, and he was also doing Three Men and a Baby. And so, uh, so you know, he, he stuck with what he knew and he did a great job with that film. Um, yeah, but then Richard Donner, he had experience with uh, with a lot of these, and you know, I think that um, I think that some of my issues with the film come from him. And uh, I mean, I like Richard Donner; he's done a lot of great stuff: The Omen, the original uh, two Superman films, uh, The Goonies. I just that's one of my favorites. Um, I I think that, and, and then of course he's done all four of the Lethal Weapon films. The thing that I feel about Richard Donner that he brought to the table is I think he ended up really emphasizing, like really emphasizing the the nature of family in this script. And I think that really became prevalent in the, in the three that followed, how family became so key in the stories. And I think family, it was written in the screenplay here by Black, um, And obviously it becomes very important because Rianne gets kidnapped and there's all of that sort of stuff. But by the time we get to the, I can't remember if it was the third one or the fourth one that ends with like the big group photo and like, we're family. I was just like ready to throw up watching that (laughs) in the film. It was just so, so maudlin and just silly. Uh, I, I feel like he brought that to the film. And really, I feel like he brought it because this group of people had been around for four films and they had become a family, and that's why I think that they did that. I just felt like it was not appropriate for the film. Um, I I really feel like um like some of the the uh, the violence and some of that some of that suicidal nature, some of the craziness of Riggs got a little watered down by Donner, and so. As much as I love what was going on in here conceptually, I feel like it didn't completely work for me, and I feel like I, I, I personally feel like I pin that to Donner, and yes, some to Black for some of the the comedy antics in the screenplay, but I, I don't know. I like Richard Donner though. I, I I like what he does in general. What did you think of his direction? Well,
1: I I liked him too. I couldn't help but think about where he had come from immediately before *Lethal Weapon*. Right. I mean, it was it was 1976 when he did *The Omen*. That was the 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 last R movie he did before this one. And then he did *Superman*. Uncredited on *Superman* two *Inside Moves*. Pfft, dumb uh, *The Toy*. Uh, the Jackie Gleason. Uh, uh, Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor film, Lady Hawk, uh, and then The Goonies, right? All of these films are really centered on, in, in some way, shape, or form, that sort of uh, tribe relationship, family or a relationship, like partner relationship, you know, and, love relationship. And, and more youthful. Exactly. Much more youthful, much more sort of uh, 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 playful uh, than... And, and I think that so much of that is is injected into Lethal Weapon. And if anything, that's where some of that weird awkwardness comes into play, where it's youthful and playful in ways where it probably shouldn't be, um, you know, and certainly wouldn't be if the film were made today.
0: Right. Yeah, I feel like now you could make something that was much more just straight-up violent. I mean, I really feel, looking at this again, like a, a Lethal Weapon with— These two cops, one of whom is a touch suicidal, and take kind of some of that comedy out of it. I think it could have made a really intense police action film. What do you think about the
1: remake of Miami Vice?
0: Oh, it's tedious. It was just a a snooze fest.
1: You thought it was snoozeworthy, huh? Oh yes. I didn't think it was. uh, I didn't didn't sleep through it. I mean, it was a little bit long winded, but. Well, wasn't but see so, I also so harsh is- on it but but that isn't that kind of a, the same thing. I mean that going from the frivolity of the TV show to uh, you know something that was easily you know seriously much darker uh, than the TV show and and I, I guess my point is I don't necessarily know that I would have wanted that. like I think you're absolutely right. Lethal weapon would make a great remake right now uh, and and to take some of that sort of candy coating out of it. But that's a lot of what makes Lethal Weapon as it is so much fun.
0: Well, yeah, and I'm probably wrong in saying that. I, I mean, I really feel like I'd be taking out a, a key element that actually makes it what it is. Right. Um. So yeah, I. So I'm. I, I. don't necessarily think that's the right answer. I'm not sure what the right answer is. I just feel like. I feel like Richard Donner maybe may have, may have added a little more of that family vibe to it and brought down the level of that kind of that the frightening realities of some of that suicidal nature that might have made it a stronger film, at least for me.
1: Mm -hmm. All right. I hear it. So Uh, anyway, uh, I I really, uh, I really appreciate what Richard Donner did to it. I actually, um, I I quite like it. I think the, um, I I think his approach to it, I think that's what makes uh, Mel Gibson shine is, is Mel Gibson is, is particularly adept at bringing that kind of wild uh, frivolity Uh, to the role at this era of his career. And he was was magnetic to watch.
0: Yeah, and he's certainly the best in this one out of the four. Oh, gosh, I don't know. He's pretty good in the second one, too. Again, I'm torn between the two. I think we should just give quick credit where credit is due to Joel Silver. I mean, we've talked about a number of his films that he's produced, but uh, we haven't really brought him up. But, you know, I got to say, the man knows how to produce action films. (laughs) That is the truth. (laughs) Boy, oh boy! I mean, you look at uh, at his credits. I mean, starting, geez, back in uh, in the '70s with like the Warriors, and uh, well, Xanadu doesn't really fit, but I mean, like Xanadu 48- totally
1: fits. You shut your mouth.
0: <laughs> Forty-eight hours, Streets of Fire, uh, Commando. Uh, you know, jump, even Jumpin' Jack Flash had some action uh, right before this. And then he gets into Lethal Weapon and Predator and Action Jackson, Die Hard. I mean, just the list of stuff that this guy has done. And I mean, all the way up through uh, Shane Black's uh, film that's coming out this year, The Nice Guys.
1: Die Hard is another one of those movies that fits exactly with this, right? Mel Gibson's uh, Riggs and, uh, you know, is, is Bruce Willis uh, and uh, to John McTiernan's right John McClane. do
0: you know what I mean mm-hmm. like
1: this is this is that same character that same humor die hard would be a a very it, it has the makings for a seriously dark film if you take some of the frivolity out of it but that's also
0: what makes it so special yeah so i i love die hard die hard die, i definitely love uh vastly more more
1: than, more than lethal Weapon, certainly
0: yeah. yeah you know another problem that i have and and uh, speaking to cast now i guess i I don't know why, but Danny Glover's character, Roger Murtaugh, has always kind of driven me nuts. <laughs> why is that? I think it's just this whole kind of like, he's got a really weird relationship with his family. And, uh, and he talks to himself a lot. And I mean, there, it's nothing that I think I can blame on anyone except just me and my reaction to him. It's probably fine as character traits. I just, for some reason, watching him, it just just kind of drives me a little nutty. And he, in particular, as this series went on, I just got more and more sick of Murtaugh. (laughs) Everybody's sick of Murtaugh. I did did
1: not get sick of Murtaugh, but this was the first time I I think I appreciated the film for the perspective that where we pick up in the storyline of these two characters, they are already older guys, right? Yes. I mean, they're both Vietnam vets. Uh this is this is a, a a film that celebrates the the end of in many respects their second careers. Right, right? And and that's something I didn't get when I was a kid when I saw this that maybe my dad understood at the time, but I certainly did not. Not in a way that I do now. And that's something that I think uh hinders the series where if you buy into it, it helps this film, right? I I found myself, like, I understood it. I understood his fatigue, but at the end of this film, they could just as well have retired, and I would have been okay. Like, it doesn't make sense to me how he's, you know, he's on his retirement bent, and, you know, they keep bringing him back for the rest of the series.
0: Well, it's because it made so much money. They well, had to I, no, keep I, I know I know,
1: but from the character perspective, <laughs> it never makes it never made a lot of sense to me. Like, it didn't really, I, I didn't really buy it, and, um, and and so that's one of the things that I think hinders it. Um, but I, but I do get it in this case. Like, this is this is a movie that celebrates, uh, you know, old guys who are kind of particularly in Murtaugh's case, he's an old guy who is like here is here's this sort of energetic. Um, you know, psychological, psychopathic, uh, you know, partner that he is stuck with who like a puppy to an old dog kind of allows him to recover and regain his enthusiasm for the job for this one last thing. And I, I, that's a, that's a trope and I, I like it. I connect with it. But again, this would have been for me, this would have been a really satisfying one-off. I could have seen it just end.
0: No, I agree. And actually in the original, Uh, the original ending, I believe that he actually is talking about retiring and and Riggs is kind of talking him out of it. And uh, I mean, I don't know. I kind of like that as an ending and this, this is kind of the downside to uh, you know, (laughs) the Hollywood machine when something makes money, they want to keep cranking stuff out. Yeah. Um, And you know, I I think you're right. This would have been great as a one-off where it kind of ended here. Yeah. Um, But that being said, I I still love Lethal Weapon 2. So I'm not going to fault it for creating something that makes money. I mean, yeah. you you can't do that.
1: And and in fact, I I mean, Leo Gets in 2 yes. is is Joe Pesci's greatest comedic character. So good. Uh that that doesn't really. I mean, he he gets annoying in the other movies, but in number 2 he was perfect.
0: Yeah. So his bit about Subway yeah. is just will live <laughs> on. In infamy. It will live on in infamy. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, uh what about uh, what about Gary Busey? You know, <laughs> this is the period where I guess I could handle Gary Busey better. <laughs> I mean, he's great as uh, as kind of that uh, that malicious evil psycho killer. I mean, I think that he does a great job with that type of character. I enjoy seeing him here and I enjoy uh, just the vibe that he brings as as kind of this dark evil person who also and I again I really liked this in the script that really the good guys and the bad guys are all from the same world they all came from that Vietnam world yes and I, I really liked that a lot in this script that they, that they all kind of had that background and uh, yeah I, I thought he was uh, I th- actually thought he was really good here
1: I did too uh, what did you think
0: of the final fight I it drives me nuts <laughs> <laughs>
1: Me too, for so many reasons.
0: I was just like, God, this is just like more testosterone, throw it at the screen, let them fight. I, was just, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's like watching Godzilla. It's like, no, let them fight. It's, <laughs> it's... <laughs> Murtaugh
1: practically would have said that. That is that is the thing that bugs me, probably more than the final, than the, uh, the, the fire balloon. Uh, in the jumping scene, oh, is yeah. that it is when all of the cops are showing up to watch this martial arts face-off in a suburban front yard in the rain of a fire hydrant. Um, that is That is so beyond anything that I can possibly wrap my head around as real anymore. I probably loved it. I probably just ate it all up every bit of it. But that dates the film for me more than just about anything else. When the cops I mean, are saying, "No, no, no, I'm a cop. Don't, don't, don't stop them. Let them fight." Right. <laughs> That's not. Let them fight is not a thing they say.
0: Right. Ever. Yeah, no. And also, and this really bothered me uh, more than I've ever been bothered. Uh, and maybe it's just I, I never really paid attention to it, but the fact that Gary Busey pulls up to the house, and you know, you have got that that. That cutesy moment when he's in the house and he's got the he comes to the sign that says, "Hey, we're not, uh, nobody here but us good guys." Ho ho ho, or whatever it is, it's straight out of Die Hard. Sort of a little note. Um, but the thing that really bothers me is that he pulls up to the house. The house is under protection by two cops out front who <laughs> are like checking people to make sure that they're not crazy psycho Gary Busey. And he pulls out his gun and blows them away. Yeah. And it's just like. All the cops knew this guy was coming to the house. The family was already safely away, you know. And this is why it drives me nuts now. It's like the family was safely away. The whole thing was a setup to get him into the house to see the note before they drive the car into the house. And so it's like they deliberately let these two cops sit out front and get killed by Gary Busey.
1: Yeah, they were plot in points. order
0: in order for them to get him into the house. He could have gotten into the house completely fine without having to have two cops' lives lost by this by this crazy guy just in order to have Riggs and Murtaugh set him up.
1: Yes. Ridiculous. I was
0: so bothered that those cops got killed.
1: There's a there's a lot of the—that was another thing that really—I mean, there's a lot of just frivolous shooting of people that, that touched me more than it ever has. Yeah. Just a lot of rolling well, on the ground, shooting people, a lot of—it was just—it was friv- pretty frivolous. Yeah. Uh but I have to say on the other side of that there was some fantastic torture. As long as we're talking about that, the salt in the wound Ugh. uh and the electricity, Jeez. Enzo's electricity. That was tough. That was good. That was
0: brutal. Yeah. That that was that was creative and awful. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that was that was pretty good stuff. You know what else we had that uh, is worth talking about, but we kind of glossed over Mel Gibson early on, but two key things with Mel Gibson that I think are worth mentioning. One, his hair Done by Ramsey. Yes. yes. Uh, now, now Ramsey is listed as Mel's hairstyle designer in the credits. And I think it is key to point out that this was really iconic for Mel Gibson at this time. Like this hair became really what Mel Gibson was like, his look, you know? And it's funny that, uh, that it was such a critical thing. And it is scripted that, you know, he's, uh, I can't remember the, the, word in the script but it's like you know his long hair so i mean he had long hair Mm -hmm. and it was designed to be this way for mel gibson and i think that it just became really kind of key for mel gibson like i can't remember the point when all of a sudden he lost his hair and was like mel gibson with short hair and it was almost a shock to see him not with long hair again
1: it was it was after wasn't it after uh right after braveheart maybe because he did he did uh uh well there was Lethal Weapon Three forever and then was Lethal Weapon Three it? No, no he still he had, had it in Lethal Weapon Three. All, That's yeah, right.
0: All of those had long hair. Maybe it was like Maverick, Forever Young or Man Without a Face. Maverick or something. he did not. Oh well Hamlet actually he did not. And he so, had a short haircut in Hamlet.
1: He did, and so Hamlet must have been shot um after uh Lethal Weapon Three. Because then Man Without a Face and Ransom and all of those were well, well, except for Braveheart he had, but Braveheart might may have been, uh,
0: no, Braveheart was a weave. It was clearly a wig. <laughs> well, Hamlet was 90, and then he had two years before he was on screen again, so yeah. he had two years to grow his hair out again.
1: What about John Smith and Pocahontas? <laughs> he had long hair there, too. I think he had long hair there. It was long, flowing blonde hair.
0: But so that was one thing about Mel okay. Gibson. And the other thing, <laughs> like, was this the start of Mel's butt craze? Like... There was this period also around this time, like late 80s, early 90s, where I felt like every Mel Gibson movie had to have his butt in it. And I know he had it, he flashed it in Gallipoli, but I feel like this is kind of where the real butt craze began. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know why that sticks in my head. It's like, oh, geez, more of Mel's butt. Andy,
1: Mel Gibson has an incredible butt. (laughs)
0: That's what it is, right?
1: Right. I mean, come on. It is an, it, it. was. It is a work of art, and where else are you going to showcase it?
0: True, very true. Might as well be here.
1: Celebrate the butt, Andy. When if you <laughs> if, if you really you want to celebrate specimen, the butt,
0: go watch Bird on a Wire because that was the butt celebration film, as I was, recall. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think we've. I think we've. Um, <laughs> We've done all we can do on that. Uh, I
0: think so. How about
1: Mitchell Ryan, Pete? He was uh I'm used to Mitchell Ryan playing either um something uh really melodrama or comedy. Mhm. I don't know him all that well uh from um too many shows, but I know him very well from Dharma and Greg. Right. You know, that was just happened to be when I was watching uh you know, more evening sitcoms. And I, it was goofy, and he was he was really really funny in that show. So to go back and see him in this as in this film as the key villain uh, was really surprising. I had forgotten he was even in it.
0: Yeah, I had too. Um, I I don't uh, know if I've seen that much of him. I mean, he was in High Plains Drifter. Uh, he was in uh, Friends of Eddie Coyle. I mean, he's definitely yeah. been in some some great films. And then he's like you know 107 episodes of Dark Shadows. Yeah, right. Hot you Shots know, I mean, he, Part Deux. Right, I mean, he is all over the place as far as kind of the types of projects yeah. that he's done. Um, my memory of him, though, is that I uh, we saw him at Disneyland. You did <laughs> with his family, yes, and it was uh, it was just one of those moments. I'm like, hey, that guy's kind of familiar, and I couldn't place him until I saw an episode of Dharma and Greg. I'm like, oh, that's the guy.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: He was uh, he was uh,
1: Commander Will Riker's father on hmm. Star Trek Next Generation he was actually up for the role of Jean-Luc Picard.
0: Interesting, I didn't know that. Uh,
1: yes. Yeah, that was his uh, that was he he it could have been Mitch Ryan as uh, Jean-Luc Picard. This feels less weird French. now
0: thinking about that.
1: Might it would just be John Picard.
0: Yeah, John, right. <laughs> John. <laughs> and <laughs> and instead
1: of a C it'd be Picard with a K. Um <laughs> uh, but uh anyhow no he was i i think he was he was terrific and i i like his uh you know his little speech about trust when he lights uh uh Mr. Joshua's arm on fire is is particularly intense and i think he was he was great. He's not in it no. at all that much right this is really a Mr. Joshua kind of and film.
0: Yeah and he's he's kind of that antagonist who's who's kind of the big boss but he's you know yeah it's his henchman who really is the one who is the uh the violent evil right. one. Did you like? To, did you like Tom Atkins in it?
1: What was he supposed to be? A car dealer?
0: <laughs> he's a banker. He runs a bank. Felt like a car dealer. Yeah, you know, I, I, I mean, he's he's fine. I, he's just one of those guys who pops up in. Th- I mean, we talked about him in Escape from New York. Yeah, and uh, he's just one of those guys who's just that. He's a face that I am used to seeing. I have three more um, actors that I just wanted to briefly mention. Mm-hmm. First, Darlene Love as yes. uh, Danny Glover's wife Danny Glover's wife right uh, and she's in all the films and i really don't have much to say to her except you know as the person who sings Christmas baby please come home in a movie that it takes place at christmas time like i was like why don't they feature that song and i'm sure it's <laughs> it would have been a little awkward but it's like god that's like an iconic iconic christmas song it was, it worked so well in gremlins a few years before this which is probably why they didn't use it But uh, I just I I don't I never piece the two together that she is the same person who sings that song.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, the fact that none of her songs are in there. I mean, she sang. Yeah, he's a rebel. Yeah, I mean, she was big in the '60s and '70s. Uh huh. Yeah. Um. So you're right. I
0: actually hadn't made that connection at all. But that's really ridiculous. Ridiculous. Because that's, I I love that Christmas song. So anyway, her, Jackie Swanson, who plays uh, the young daughter who dies right at the beginning of the film, Mm -hmm. and this is just so weird, she is best known for her role on Cheers as Kelly, the rich and simple love interest of Woody. (laughs) That blew my mind. I was like, (laughs) whoa. I'm letting that sink in right now.
1: That's crazy. I totally remember that. I don't place those.
0: Faces. I, I can I can place her face like once I said that. Oh, okay. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that's totally is. Wow, it's just so funny. This is this is like one of those things where it's like I need to get out of doing TV and and sitcoms. What can I do? I know. <laughs> that she jumps into this one. Okay, and and then the last one is Mary Ellen Trainer. She's the psychologist, and she ends up being kind of like a comedic foil for Riggs through the rest of the films, which does kind of drive me nuts. But she's one of those faces that just I know so well. And I think so much of it comes from things like Romancing the Stone, where she's uh, she's Joan Wilder's sister. She's the mom in The Goonies. And obviously, from that kind of tied into uh, uh, Richard Donner. She's also in The Monster Squad. So she's tied in with uh, um, uh, Shane Black, who also wrote that.
1: She's in Die Hard.
0: Yeah, she's in Die Hard. <laughs>
1: Action Jackson, she's in all of these. You're right. She's Scrooged. in so
0: much stuff. And, and uh, geez, she's, you know, she pops up in Forrest Gump. I mean, she's all yeah. over the place. Truly. It's just one of those faces that it's just like, once you see her, you're, you see her everywhere.
1: Yeah. Well, that's uh, those are easily the face, with the exception of the police chief. I guess we didn't mention uh, the chief.
0: Steve K- Kahan, Captain Murphy. It's like he is best friends with... Uh, Richard Donner, yeah, right. Superman, he's always a cop. Inside he's, Moves. No, yeah. listen, listen, it's it's the same filmography. Superman, Inside Moves, The Toy, Lethal Weapon, Lethal Weapon Two. It's the Radio Flyer, Lethal Weapon Three, Maverick. Like he's in all yeah. of Richard Donner's films. It's That's crazy. Right.
1: This, uh, so he was another one of those faces. The other thing I did want to mention was that this film uh, really is about, uh, the, the pretense of this film is all around, uh, they mention Air America, right? The, the, uh, Vietnam, the CIA run evacuation, uh, right. protocol. And this made me want to go see that
0: movie again, which uh, I've never seen, but that's Mel Gibson's in that, right? With, uh, Robert, Downey, Robert Jr. Downey Jr.
1: And, um, I I remember liking it but I remember also r- just really liking the young Robert Downey Jr. I thought he was very funny and awkward and and it was actually it was more or less he was the straight guy to Mel Gibson as the goofy kind of senior pilot In the Air America program, and I I actually remember really liking that.
0: Well, and that was more of a comedy, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, much more of a comedy. But it was one of those with uh, it was a comedy with a with a uh, that wore its uh, agenda right on its sleeve. It it was it it was funny, but there it definitely had a point.
0: So is uh, yeah right? They were trying to point out a little bit of the uh... yeah the
1: history and the Mm -hmm. the perils of the history. But uh, it was uh, Roger Spottiswood, and so you know Turner and Hooch.
0: The publicity for the film, advertised as a lighthearted buddy movie, implied a tone that differs greatly with the actual film's tone, which includes such serious themes as an anti war message, focus on the opium trade, and a negative portrayal of royal Laotian general Vang Pao. Yeah.
1: Yeah. that was It was definitely a true story. <laughs>
0: they really <laughs> tried to bury that into the comedy. Interesting. So, anyway,
1: that's worth seeing.
0: What'd you think of all the stunt work in this? I did like considering, the stunt work. Considering it's an action film, yeah.
1: A lot of jumping up and
0: jumping off of things. Dar Richardson was the – he's credited at the end for a a, a, – like in memory of – he's a stuntman who actually died, I think, um, shortly after production on this finished. Um, He he died in a motorcycle accident, but he was like the – the high fall specialist in in uh, Hollywood. One of his most amazing stunts, he doubled for Christopher Plummer at the conclusion of High Point in 1982, where the villain falls from the 1,170-foot-high 1, CN Tower in Toronto. He took the plunge with a concealed parachute, which he opened at the absolute last moment, and he earned $150,000 for that stunt. He did another one where he did a fall, from a very high balcony. And it looks like he lands on the pavement, but what they did is they did a wire rig that decelerated his fall. Bit. And so there's no airbag and he lands on the pavement, but the wires kind of kept him from getting hurt. It's like oh crazy. God.
1: That's awful.
0: It's, it's nuts. It really <laughs> is crazy. So yeah, he's uh, he's one of those guys. I can see why they credited him um, for the crazy work that he did. And I guess I, it didn't sound like he actually did the fall. Um, in this film, but um,
1: certainly got uh, the credit and got some he, some he desi- deserved he des- credit.
0: Well, he designed the stunt that Jackie Swanson does, where yeah. she, she does the high fall at the beginning, and and she trained or he trained her to do that. And uh, and then I don't think he did this the stunt with the airbag, I'm not sure if he was the other guy or not, but mm. but clearly he is a guy that knows how to handle these sorts of things. So, kudos to him amazing stunts here and then you look at that and then you also look at kind of the fight at the end of the film i think this is really funny what did you think of the okay we already talked about what we think of the fight itself but what did you think of the the actual fighting style i'm curious
1: it was you know it was uh really chaotic and uh, in terms of how it was um i had a hard time moving in and out of styles like we would move into um you know full-on jiggly monkey uh, and then, out to uh, full sort of proscenium view of the stage of the fight, and we watched these guys uh move in and out of different just sort of crazy grappling to dance moves with each other to jumping up and down on each other and throws and and it was it was it was, be- it was sort of beautiful in its chaos and uh, and I think they they looked good.
0: What I think is funny, well, one, you read that in the script and it is just really a violent, violent fight. Like every hit it's like, and then more ribs break. And then, you know, he just, you know, dislocates his arm. And it's like, it is constantly these two guys with their skills from the covert ops that they were in in Vietnam and the skills that, that they learned messing each other up. In really bad ways, and and Riggs actually like does this jump over him at the end and like snaps his neck, and it's it's pretty it's pretty crazy that the way that it all happens. But the um, in the script or in the film, it, it sounds like Richard Donner wanted this fight to be really unique, and so he brought in a bunch of different martial arts specialists to do this. Teach these guys how to do this fight. They brought in an expert for Capoeira. They brought mm-hmm. an expert in for uh, Jailhouse Rock, which I didn't think was a, <laughs> a fight fighting style. That's but an Elvis thing, <laughs> but apparently it is a fighting style. And um, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Now, uh, I think it's great that they brought these guys in. I really appreciate the uh, the. I lengths like that I, these guys went to, but I don't. I didn't feel like it was a martial arts fight. I was like, really? That was all different martial arts styles, like pushing their head into the puddle. <laughs>
1: <laughs> is that a? Is mm-hmm. that that's, that's, a, capo- that's a capoeira <laughs> move? No, I I always thought that capoeira and Brazili- Brazilian jiu jitsu were were sort of one and the same.
0: Yeah, capoeira is a Brazilian martial arts style that combines elements of dance, acrobatics, and music, and usually referred to as a game. So I, I think what it was, it was not so much.
1: <laughs> I remember how I heard about. It. I think Capoeira wasn't that. The, that was the, the dance style of fighting. It's like a dance, a street dance off. <laughs> it's like the Sharks and the Jets. That's what, it was. West Side Story.
0: Yeah, it's known for quick and complex moves using mainly power, speed, and leverage for a wide variety of kicks, spins, and highly mobile techniques. So it's it's very motion movement kinetic. oriented kinetic. Yeah, yeah, and so I think it was the movements of Capoeira tied in with the jiu-jitsu, which is the fighting style, yeah. along with jailhouse rock, which, yes, is a, a, a term to describe a different fighting styles that have been practiced and or developed within U.S. penal systems or U.S. penal institutions. Wow. So, yeah, that's, that's I, what they're fighting with.
1: I, I, didn't, I didn't see that no. uh, in the thing, but I, I don't know. Look at this, fullcontactmartialarts.org, 52 hand blocks jailhouse rock. <laughs> this is yeah no this is a thing
0: it is things wow. you learn
1: things you learn did not see this coming okay uh, well yeah overall that was all great but what it but none of it really matters until we talk about the music
0: oh yes yes good old uh, good old uh, Michael Kamen and Eric Clapton
1: Eric Clapton was a, just such a score on this movie I f- I think this is possibly the best action movie score I have ever heard for a movie like this, for like a, for a contemporary kind of action buddy cop movie. I don't mean to narrow my scope too much because I really do love it, but I don't want to compare this to like star Wars. I, I, but, but still this score represents the character and the narrative better than just about anything I can think of. It's longing and lonely and incredibly um, listenable uh, and I think it's just perfect.
0: Well, I'm glad you like it. <laughs> you don't like it? I really don't. I You're have a hard insane. time. Insane. What? The music just doesn't work for me. And I mean, I I like the 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 lonely theme that Eric Clapton kind of has. That guitar theme that he has for Riggs. I think that is nice. The rest of the score feels very dated now, and I have a hard time connecting with it. I just I don't click with it very much. So oh, I'm sorry,
1: man. That's okay. Uh, I mean, <laughs> wow! I just I'm so surprised.
0: Uh, this but- is probably why when we talked about Rush, I had no recollection that Eric Clapton had ever done film <laughs> scores because it just doesn't work for me at all. I expected.
1: I really expected uh, you to to love this one.
0: Yeah, I, I I mean, I like some of Michael Kamen's other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it just I don't know, there's something about this one that I just I really struggled with this time and I just kept rolling my eyes when the music you rolled play. your eyes. I was like, oh, more of this. Yeah, I did. I really did. So did go back and listen to
1: Robin Hood Prince of Thieves to cleanse your palate.
0: I like that one. That one was good. So much better than the movie. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is definitely true. You
1: know, I mentioned that the um the, the fight scene verged on the jiggly monkey uh it, it went jiggly monkey pretty hardcore, but generally the cinematography was was pretty straightforward. Uh Stephen Goldblatt did the um uh, cinematography of this one and uh, Stuart Baird to the editing.
0: Yeah, you say pretty straightforward, but I actually thought it looked really nice. I, I thought they did a lot of nice stuff that just it, it made it feel very cinematic. And I think that was uh, a strength uh, for Richard Donner to bring Stephen Goldblatt on. It may have been pretty standard, but at the same time, it was standard in a really cinematic way that that allowed for that scope.
1: Yeah, no, and I, I don't want to, I, I, I mean, he didn't go so far into the Jiggly Monkey everywhere, right? I mean, I felt like the opening sequence was really gorgeous that the, the helicopter, uh, zoom into the building I thought was, beautiful i mean talk about cinematic
0: especially uh, for its time i mean yeah. that's the sort of thing and they go into the room and stuff it's like that was pretty impressive for a yes. 1987 film
1: absolutely what i what i'm saying is i could follow it all and that's a that's a real gift like i felt like i followed the narrative and the cinematography didn't get in the way uh, until the fight scene at the end where i started getting frustrated um, yeah. so overall i think it's a that that for me is a great compliment to it
0: he's done some great stuff I and mean, we talked about him recently on Outland Yes, And uh, a while ago on Joe versus the Volcano. And oddly enough, tying to last week, he did Young Sherlock Holmes.
1: <laughs> there you go. There was some good Always stuff Always looking there.
0: for connections, yeah. yes. <laughs> right. uh,
1: anything else we need to talk about? Oh, you have... Uh, I do know something we need to talk about. You actually have a very special link that we haven't brought up on this show in a long time. And that is the Internet Movie Firearms
0: Database. Yes, it is. Which always makes us sound like such gun nuts, which we're totally not. But I think it's great that somebody put this website together so you can see what sort of pistols, revolvers, submachine guns, uh, rifles and carbines, shotguns and other miscellaneous weapons these guys used in this film. And I'll just tell you, it's a lot. It is a lot. I think we should keep a record of uh the Shane Black series as we go along to see which of these ends up using the, the biggest variety of guns. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, because a lot of these are are just more shots of his beretta, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, a lot of beretta. A lot of beretta. Yeah, uh, two there's a little beretta.
0: Yep, yeah, that yeah. little tiny one. <laughs> uh, yeah. I always I always love looking at this website. Yeah, the Smith and Wesson looks great. Yeah. I mean, it even goes into like the grenade, you know, that they use. Oh
1: my gosh, the page doesn't end.
0: Yeah, and then there's the uh, the big uh, uh, Heckler and Cock PSG one, uh, the sniper rifle yeah. that he uses when he's out there. Yeah, good stuff. I mean, it's 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 a really interesting website, and I always I always laugh when I get to look at it, and <laughs> see. <laughs> what all the weapons are. I mean, it is pretty interesting that uh, these guys clearly know their stuff and they bring on a lot of weapons.
1: They really do. That is a thorough uh, assessment of the weapons.
0: Yes. So we'll have that link in our yeah, show notes for show everybody notes.
1: to check out. I love the grenade. That's too funny.
0: So this film was nominated for one Oscar, which, uh, you know, I it's It's fitting, I guess. This is the sort of film that ends up getting that one Oscar nomination for something like uh, for its sound. Yes, it did get nominated for best sound. Uh, The guys involved with that uh, did a great job here. It did did not win. This was the big year for The Last Emperor, which seemed to kind of sweep the Oscars that Mm -hmm. year. Um, So The Last Emperor won. The other nominees were Empire of the Sun, RoboCop, and The Witches of Eastwick. I will say the sound in this was pretty solid, so I don't know. I, it's been a while since I've seen, seen The Last Emperor, but I don't know. It seems like this or RoboCop are the sort of films I would have thought would win Best Sound, but yeah, who am I to judge? Uh, is
1: is this up for a reboot?
0: You know, they were talking about this. Warner Brothers. Um, I think five years ago now, um, they started. Uh, they announced plans to actually reboot the series without uh, Gibson and Glover, just starting some um, same characters but new actors playing the roles. Um, they did hire somebody to write the script, uh, Will Beal, and uh, that's kind of all I've heard. I don't know anything else. If it's uh, kind of just fallen off the map, if they've been unable to figure out what to do with it, or what. I'm very curious. As of Feb, it looks like as of February, uh,
1: Riggs' character had yet to be cast, but Damon Wayans was uh, was hired to do to play the part of Murtog, and it was going to be a TV reboot directed uh. by McGee. Wow! Really? Yeah. yeah. Uh, from huh. script writer, uh, uh, script and executive producer Matt Miller. So I, uh, you know, where do you stand on McGee?
0: Having just rewatched Charlie's Angels, <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I don't. I don't think I care that much for McGee. That's I'm trying that's to remember weird. what else McGee has done. If there's anything else that I enjoy, well, Terminator Salvation. Oh. <laughs> that was not what? something I enjoyed. What?
1: What uh. you didn't you had oh. tro-
0: no oh, you didn't no. like that one no, no
1: so yes that was uh that was there it, it, you know but he's got he's got a number of other uh another other credits it looks like the um he's also behind uh shadow hunters the mortal instruments he directed uh one of those episodes is tv uh three days to kill this is that's one with old two by four was in it and i i thought you might have liked that
0: it looked interesting, but it also looked very... That was the one, I, as I recall, it kind of looked... Uh, it looked like there was a weird tone change, as I recall, in the trailer.
1: Yeah. What about We Are Marshall? I think you said you hadn't seen that one. Is that right?
0: And I still haven't. Okay. Well, it looked schmaltzy one. and... Yeah, yeah, well,
1: you know. It, it, it's exactly sure it what you get schmaltzy. on the cover. Yeah, I mean, right. <laughs> believe me, it's all written on the tin. Uh, and then This Means War uh, was another... Action comedy. This was a Chris Pine and uh, with uh, Reese Witherspoon, Chris Pine, oh, and Tom Hardy. Yeah,
0: that uh, that was basically the spy versus spy. Yep, yep. Yeah, and I think my wife saw that and really regretted her time spent
1: on yeah. that one. No, you'd want your time back after that.
0: Yeah. So,
1: anyhow, it looks like, it looks like Lethal Weapon is, is possibly moving to TV. McG will direct the pilot, and uh, it is only still in announced stage, nowhere uh, filming. So, it'll be interesting to see. Well, if, what
0: they're, if uh, they're bringing on one of the Wayans brothers, I get us, and McG, I get a real sense as to where they're taking it. Yeah, yeah. No,
1: I mean, this is a, uh, he was also behind um, Chuck oh remember chuck know. yeah he directed the i think he directed the pilot of that one anyway he was uh he was part of the production team on that one too and so you also get a sense like it, chuck was that same kind of action comedy uh humor heart that kind of a thing right right right. it was good i mean we we, we actually enjoyed that one that was kind of fun the first two seasons or so hmm. Then then it went bananas
0: then it went off the rails off the rails anyway uh how to do like I said this opened uh, March 6th 1987 it cost 15 million to make which is about 30 million 30, well 30.7 $30. million in today's dollars so you know considering what action films cost these days that actually seems really low
1: Yeah that would have covered the helicopter today
0: Yeah right exactly um it ended up making domestically about 65 million and about 55 million internationally so all told it ended up uh, grossing um yeah about 120 million which is about not just under 250 million in uh, adjusted dollars for today so all told this film ended up making about 1.9 million in adjusted dollars in profit per finished minute this film uh, this film did really well this film held uh, the number 1 box office spot for i think 3 weeks straight until it was bumped by blind date of all things
1: Wow, so, blind yeah.
0: date. So, yeah, it did really well. And obviously, it was, uh, it, you know, it spawned a huge franchise that I think has made, you know, well over a billion. It's, yeah. it's, it's a very phenomenally successful franchise. And clearly, if they made it based on what I think they should have done, it probably wouldn't have done as well as it did. Yeah, right. So, but, you know, that being said, I mean, it's it's a fun film. I just didn't connect with it as much as I did when I was younger.
1: Uh, I, you know, we probably should uh, go ahead and rank it, don't you think? Yeah, let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com/slash/the-next-reel, and you can see our stack rankings of all of our films. Uh, and uh, you should join us. Search for Lethal Weapon, and you can start right with us. Just search for Lethal Weapon, click Add to My uh, Library, and you'll get a filmo off filmo matchup. Lethal Weapon. Versus probably something that'll be really difficult.
0: Nope. Lethal Weapon or Stagecoach. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that'd be Lethal Weapon. That'd be Lethal Weapon. Yeah. Lethal Weapon or Boogie Nights. Definitely Boogie Nights for me.
1: Boogie Nights, yeah.
0: Lethal Weapon or Sunshine. I'm I'm going with some sunshine.
1: Yep, yep, sunshine.
0: Lethal Weapon or Being John Malkovich. Definitely Being John Malkovich. BJM. Lethal Weapon or Viridiana. Lethal Weapon. I'm going with Viridiana.
1: How seriously?
0: Half seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I had I had so many more problems with Lethal Weapon this time. Viridiana, I think, was a really smart film. I really enjoyed it. I probably won't watch it that often. Um, I'd watch <laughs> Lethal Weapon more often.
1: That's pretty telling because, yeah, that's it. I mean, that's why I'd watch Lethal Weapon. I mean, I'm a lethal weapon on that. But so yeah, I don't know Viridiana's, why you would pick Veridiana when you are because telling it's the me, better film. <laughs> but you're on funny. a desert island. You're on a desert island, and you have I, these it, two movies in a VHS player. You're gonna, you're telling me you're gonna watch Veridiana
0: more often than Lethal Weapon. I'd have to think about it because if I'm on a desert island and I want a film that's actually gonna spur me on to more thought in my time stuck on this desert island, I'd pick Veridiana because there's gonna be a lot more to think about with that film. Lethal Weapon, there's not gonna be much to think about. How's that for a thought?
1: Uh, it's Well, it's wrong. <laughs> so we're, we're going to have to go to the mat on this one. I don't know why
0: we care no, by the time it's gonna, at this age, I'm going to give you Lethal Weapon. I'm just saying. I think Viridian is, is a better film. All All right. I'll give you Lethal Weapon. All right. I, well, Let's I will there. take it. Lethal Weapon or Goodbye, Mr. Chips? Jeez.
1: Probably Lethal Weapon.
0: Yeah, I'd do Lethal Weapon. I mean, Goodbye, Mr. Chips, I enjoyed, but... Yeah. It also is relatively forgettable by now. Yeah. Lethal Weapon or the Lavender Hill Mob? Lavender Hill Mob. Ah, I am definitely doing Lavender Hill Mob. definitely. Lethal Weapon. Oh, that's it. 107. Ah, wow. Landing at 107. If you had asked me this,
1: November 10th, 2011, where would Lethal Weapon end up in our top 230 some odd movies, I would have told you
0: easily it would have made the top 50. Really? Yeah. I feel like maybe without having seen it, it would have been higher. But upon rewatch, I just don't feel. I like, I feel like it's actually in a pretty fair spot.
1: I I do too. I don't feel bad about it. I certainly don't feel bad about it. But it surprises me. Sad, sad, and surprised. Well, this is
0: what happens when you know, when things age on you. I guess. Yeah. What
1: does that do to your letterboxed Star rating.
0: Well, I, I also feel like this would have been higher had I not uh, rewatched it. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm putting it at a three.
1: Yeah, I'm a solid three. Yeah. Well, there we go. So that kicked off our Shane Black story, uh, series. And I have to tell you, on reflecting on just the straight-up screenwriting and the 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 general fun of the film, it, it is. It made good on its promise of being a welcome relief to the dirge that was 1939. <laughs> It was here, a, it here. was so much fun to to watch this movie.
0: Where do we go from here? We are going to be uh continuing this uh fun series with uh The Last Boy Scout. It's not Shane Black's next film that he wrote. Um that would be if you count The Monster Squad which came out the same year. Um and then of course the um the idea that he came up with for Lethal Weapon Two, mm-hmm. those were kind of also sandwiched right in here. But this is the next uh, big thing for him. So, 1991's Last Boy Scout with uh, with a little Bruce Willis action. I like some Bruce Willis. Yes, and speaking of Wayans, yeah, we get we get some yeah. Wayans in this one. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, uh,
1: yeah. So that I don't really remember it at all.
0: I mean, at all. I remember several things uh, about it. One of which is the opening, and I am very excited to watch it. If nothing more for that opening, because I remember really enjoying that quite a bit. All right. The opening football game. Do you remember the football game? Not at all?
1: a not a stitch.
0: Nope. Well, I I'll be excited to talk about that with you next week.
1: Okay. All right. Well, I uh, I also look forward to that. I can't wait. Uh, mostly because I am enjoying Shane Black. So, well, you're here. Way to go, Shane.
0: And uh, until next week, uh, I got to go to bed. All right. I've got a building to go jump from to see if the inflation bag magically inflates for me, too.
1: Amazon Andy it doth giveth uh this is uh, mine is from k good as in and i I think it may be uh somebody's name k, but it makes me think, oh k okay, good, makes me think like that like eh, this I don't know, <laughs> as is often the case, the original film of the lethal weapon series is better than the comparatively pointless sequels which were made. And there's no doubt this film is slickly done and fast-paced. It's definitely short attention span theater. That's the praise I'll give this film. The film clearly shows American society in a very bad light and hasn't aged well. For pity's sake, isn't anyone just a little nauseated by or at least fed up with the concept of a loose cannon, anti-establishment psycho cop who blows away presumed bad guys with a horrifying prolific precision? Didn't we have enough of this whole thing with dirty, the Dirty Harry series? The Weapon is very much a Dirty Harry ripoff, except it tries to build two likable non-conformists, both of whom wisecrack quite a bit, as the centerpiece instead of the single, more morose Dirty Harry loner. Mm. I that is an interesting you know, and we didn't talk necessarily about what the cultural reflection is of Lethal Weapon on uh, American society, but I think it also celebrates exactly what we kind of needed to see in the eighties in the war on drugs, in the you know the the we were just in a very different place, and I I think uh, I I think there is definitely kind of a a reflection of the of police power and you know, fighting the good fight that was reflected in this film. And it may have been in sort of a, a bullheaded fashion, but that's definitely what it uh, what it
0: celebrates. Well, and Shane Black even said his intention was to do an urban Western inspired by Dirty Harry, yeah. where a violent character reviled for what he did, what he is capable of, the things he believed in, is eventually recruited for being the one that could solve the problem. Right.
1: So... There you go. Now K Good yeah. K Good gave us uh, two stars. That was a two
0: star review. Well, I got a one star by Dan Reef, who watched this on VHS in two thousand one. That's right. Why there were three sequels to this is beyond me. All it is is a city prostitute committing suicide and her dad thinking about killing himself too. The action sequences are bad, not good, bad. <laughs> So there you go. Clearly he wasn't paying attention to the story because I don't think anyone really kind of killed themselves.
1: Agree to disagree. Yeah. Thanks, Amazon.